everybody. <laughs> this is Jeff Edwards, the KTRS KRM Lawn and Garden Program. And we're live. And we are live. And it's the day after a holiday. Um, uh, we are glad to be here. I was having a little trouble with the microphone this morning, as you might have been able to tell. Uh, good morning, Jerry. I have with me in studio Jerry Irschbeck. How are you today? Really good, although a little stiff neck from looking up too much at the fireworks. You're supposed but, to just lay down flat. Well, <laughs> we'd go to sleep with that. <laughs> and there's chiggers. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, well, so I've heard. Yeah. But you know, we had to go to a new location because of the the uh, uh, road work that's being done uh, around our fast food areas and. So we were just a little bit southwest of the of the overpass. Okay. And we found out we were just a little close. So <laughs> <laughs> had to look up and shout out to the Torrington firefighters and the city of Torrington. They put on a spectacular show. So kudos to them. Well, we could hear it at our house, but we couldn't see it. Um, people around me said, oh, hey, wow, longer show, bigger show, bigger booms. Uh, again, I I was not blown away, obviously, because I'm still here, but what a nice show. I, I really enjoyed that. Excellent. Very good. Jeremiah, on the line with us today, we have Jeremiah Vardaman. He is the extension educator up in uh, the Powell-Cody area. Good morning, Jeremiah. How are you? Good morning. Doing really good. Fantastic. Did you have a good, safe fourth? Yeah, we did. Um, we actually are getting rain, so it's amazing. Uh, but the 4th of July was wonderful. Um, we snuck to the mountain and did a little fishing and had a campfire and then got down for the fireworks. And uh, then all night it's been raining and still raining, which is just unusual for here in the desert. So. That is very unusual. Mm -hmm. Well, we will be uh, right back with the program in a little bit. We're going to take a few minutes for messages from our sponsors, and we'll talk to you in a minute, Jeremiah. You, Sounds good. You too, Jerry. All right. Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards. This is the KGOS KERM London Garden Program. Jerry Yershebeck in the studio and Jeremiah Vardaman on the uh, line with us today. So if you want to call in today, it might be a little difficult to get us. Uh, Lynn will take your question and we'll try to answer it on air. Our program today might be a little bit different. We uh, Jeremiah is a um, crops specialist. Let's... Let, let me let you say who what you do, Jeremiah. You go ahead. You tell everybody what you do. Sure. Um, yeah, so I work for the University of Wyoming Extension. I'm considered an area educator in the northwest area, covering five counties and the Wind River Indian Reservation. Um, I cover anything uh, for lawn, gardens, trees, shrubs, all the way up to full-scale agriculture production and pretty much anything in between. Uh, I primarily focus in on the crop side of things, so uh, commercial crop production up here in the basin is sugar beets, dry beans, bar uh, malt barley. We have a little bit of corn, alfalfa seed, native grass seed, just a plethora out there. So. A, a lot of uh, focus on seed production in your area, right? Correct. Yep, we have yeah. a lot of seed production up in the area. Um, our dry, arid climate up here uh, works really well for that, uh, right? It's not this year. Yeah, right. Here in Powell, we get, um, you know, six to seven inches of moisture annually. Um, but we're, we're kind of starting to break some records. It might be, uh, it's so wet up here. Have, have, you, doubled, have you doubled down. that already? <laughs> <laughs> we might be getting close. I don't know. We might have an eight or nine year precipitation year, and we just won't know what to do with that. So, you don't yeah. know what to so do. I, yeah. The other thing that you, uh, that has grown up there that's not, uh, 
uh, in all areas of Wyoming is uh, malting barley, correct? Correct, yep. Okay. So we grow a lot of malt barley. Uh, so Miller Coors, we grow malt barley for them, and we grow malt barley for Brees malting, uh, which would go into craft brews, uh, but also into other things like pizza dough and malt balls and things like that. Are hops part of your program as well? Uh, there is some hops in the area, not a whole lot, um, but there is some, a little bit of hops being grown in the area, and there was a, a specialty crop grant uh, from the Wyoming Department of Agriculture that kind of initiated that project with a professor with Northwest College up here, uh, Micah Humphreys. And so there is a little bit of hops in the area. Well, this year would have been a really good year to try to get anything started. <laughs> yes, and we're still trying that. <laughs> Around here, everything is so slow, and part of that is is just our, our moisture and, and lack of sunshine. Diane and I were talking this morning. I think that we, we both think that everything is at least two weeks behind what we normally are. Yeah, and um, uh, we've kind of been talking back and forth the last couple of weeks about garlic scapes and making yes. them into pesto and... and uh, we're two weeks behind where we would know. They're just becoming ready now, and so we're about two weeks behind where they are. And my garlic is behind yours because I I only have maybe one or two scapes. When did you plant yours? August. August last, last year. year. Hmm. Diane's an October planter. Really? Yeah. <laughs> just wow. telling you. Just telling you. Oh my gosh. Well, maybe it might be fertilizer then, too, or the shape of the soil. <laughs> Could be a lot of we're different. We're seeing. Things. We're seeing the same thing up here. Um, you know, our malt barley is looking pretty good. It might be on maybe a week behind, but everything else, like our sugar beets, uh, dry beans. I saw a sunflower field yesterday that it's at least a month, if not six weeks behind in terms of growth and development of the crop. Uh, but we're seeing it with our gardens up here, too. Yeah, well, let's uh, just hope we have a la long, late fall, right? Oh, gosh, start crossing the fingers now, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jeremiah, yesterday I was talking to a guy that was, t was saying something about the corn being so slow because maybe perhaps some of us got a little too early of a start and our soil was too wet and as the planter discs come through the soil and make our furrow that it compacts the sides and it can't, the corn can't break through the sides as well. Do you have any information about that? Uh, not particularly. Um, it, it can happen, definitely. If the field's too wet and you mud it in too much, um, that field, and depending on conditions, that field can crust over, and that compaction can make it real hard for that crop to stand up in, and get in up a, out in of a, the field. Yeah, in a previous life, uh, I lived in a different environment, and when it was too wet and people would go in and plant, uh, they wouldn't get very good uh, seed soil contact, and the germination would be much lower than what it was. And uh, it was a heavy clay soil, so when you dug the roots, they they would actually be just in that fur, just growing in that furrow. That uh, instead of you know in a circle around the base of the, it, it's kind of a weird thing, but that's what happens. Yeah. So yeah. did anyone? Well, and we saw that up here. Okay. Um, so people put their, their corn plants in, you know, and then we started getting rain and, and keeping those cooler temperatures and a lot less uh, sunshiny days, you know, a lot more cloud cover and that. And I don't, at least for us, I don't think it was a compaction issue. Um, I think it was just cool, the cool soil temperatures. It yeah. just wasn't ideal for germination. 
because and so that seed sat in that ground for two to three weeks and rotted. But then after yeah and well i haven't heard of any rotted fields yet but oh, okay. that temperature did warm up things stood up and came up out of the field and looks nice but it's just behind by two or three weeks now. Because so we don't have the heat the sense. heat units that we're in, are typically right, used to. Right, we're struggling on heat units, yep. Yeah. So corn by the 4th of July, I didn't see very much corn knee-high. Uh, yep. Right. A little bit. Yeah, a there's bit. the only place that I've seen large corn is there's a high tunnel between um, <laughs> between between uh, um, uh, Morrill and Mitchell. Yeah, I've seen the same thing. And it's at least shoulder high, so they're gonna they're gonna <laughs> they'll do well. The, the corn inside the high tunnel is uh, they're gonna be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so but did anyone predict this much moisture? Uh, Don Day, uh, early on, he said we were going to have the same weather pattern all through June, but then he said after July got here, it would start to warm up. So I, I don't know if he adjusted his uh, thinking. Uh, yeah, uh, as, as he went, but um, uh, it's going to be an interesting year, that's for sure. Jeremiah, you, um, you have been doing some research. There's a, research, a UW Research Farm in Powell. There's a UW Research Farm in Sheridan. And uh, you are highly interested in alfalfa production, and uh, you've been working on some an alfalfa weevil project. Are you willing to share information about that? Sure. Um, so when I started my position five years ago, I was approached by the alfalfa seed industry here in the Bighorn Basin, and they they requested a growing degree day calculator for for scouting for alfalfa weevil in the field. This year's now, messing that up, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah, anytime <laughs> you want to do research and learn something about bugs, just, just wait until the weather hits you and your whole research goes sideways. But So we, we did a two-year effort of trying to make an electronic, uh, computer-generated growing degree day calculator to estimate uh, development of the alfalfa weevil so they could sample and, and uh, control those and try and manage that test in the field as best they could. We got done with that two years um, kind of ground truthing of that calculator and found out we, we hadn't succeeded. Um, the, mm. ground, the growing degree gay calculator doesn't match up with what we're seeing in the field. It's, not, so a we're still kinda it's not a good predictor for finding out what's going on with, uh, with alfalfa weevil, huh? Correct. And so we... Um, we, we're trying to look into it, so we got into another grant. We're, we're tied in with Montana and Utah. The three states have come together uh, with similar issues, and, um, and we're trying to address that. And so we're doing a lot of phenology uh, study with the alfalfa weevil. What that means is just their, their lifestyle, their, how they're growing and developing. And so I've been sampling in the field for once a week uh, since April, and uh, here we're supposed to be have first cutting of hay, but no, you know, if you drop your hay right now, it's going to turn black in the field. Uh, hey, um, I can testify to that. <laughs> <laughs> Are you struggling, Jeff? <laughs> uh, well, I had hay down for uh, 16 days, I think, and we had over, oh. four, we had over four inches of rain on it. And uh, it, it um, the, Somebody will like to eat it, I guess, but... <laughs> <laughs> Rolled it around on the field a little bit and washed it out. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's very clean. <laughs> <laughs> but I heard cows like some of that moldy hay. Yeah, um, 
it isn't worth much to, to sell it. Well, and some of that stuff that cooks in the bale, it has kind of a molasses-y yeah. smell and flavor, a uh, flavor, I guess, I don't know, uh, to it. And some of the cows kind of like that stuff. So somebody will eat it. Somebody will eat it. <laughs> Good grinder bales. That's for your livestock. We definitely want a cleaner hay, but this year it's going to be a struggle, that's for sure. Definitely. So anyway, yeah, we've been working on this alfalfa weevil project. We've been, I've been sampling here in Powell area on a few fields, and then I run over to Sheridan at the RNE Center over there and sample for the alfalfa weevil. And what we're trying to look for is what has changed. So in the, oh, about the 1960s, 70s, alfalfa weevil's been an issue. It, it's always been an issue since the early 1900s. In the 1960s and 70s, management wasn't a big deal with alfalfa weevil, maybe by the fifth, sixth, uh, year of the stand of alfalfa, they might have to control for it, alfalfa. Now, uh, growers are telling us they're having to even control maybe in their new seeding alfalfa fields, uh, if not the second year. So is, um, that a, is that a resistance issue? Do we want to, uh, do we want to talk about that at all? <laughs> do we want to go down that road? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, there is resistance uh, in the United States and in Canada, so, so there's, California so there's has identified resistance, same with Canada. We don't know if we have it here. Okay, there is potential for resistance to occur. There is potential. Okay, yeah. the other thing that's happening in the United States is there's actually two versions of alfalfa weevil, correct? Three. Three, yeah, okay. there's actually three strains of alfalfa weevil, and one of them's the Egyptian strain, and it's more in New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California. Okay. There's the eastern strain, which is Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas, and, and farther east. And then we're the western strain. And so historically, again, uh, to the literature in the 1970s, I think it was, is they identified, somebody just took a pencil, I think, and drew in the area, and Wyoming kind of had the overlap of the eastern and western strain. Of course, let's so have that, them all. Right. <laughs> and so that might be an issue, too, is that that strain has maybe been more prolific in the area, so we're dealing with two different strains, two different life, um, uh, life cycles in the area and things like that. It, the resistance is a possibility. However, I, I don't know how likely it is, to be honest with you, Jeff. The, um, the alfalfa seed growers here in the Bighorn Basin do a heck of a job of controlling alfalfa weevil. Oh, okay, they sure. Minimal alfalfa weevil in their fields. But our forage fields is where the pest really explodes and, and has some issues is in that alfalfa for forage. So wait, wait, um, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why would the seed producers, those guys that are growing for seed, have less weevil than the forage guys? Why, why is that? Uh, a couple factors. So when you grow alfalfa seed, you're contracted to a company, and they have crop advisors, and they're out there helping you, assist you grow that crop and answer questions. They're out scouting in your fields to help you manage for that crop and pest. And that's why they approached us about the calculator, to make their scouting efforts more efficient. Okay. And so uh, that's one. They're out there, and they're telling the guys, hey, you got, you know, the weevil starting to come on. Hey, you got egg hatch. You know, you're at first instar, second instar. You've, they're just monitoring that pest. You've got an economic um, level. You need to treat it. Right, and so once they hit those levels, they're they're actually controlling the pest. They they are spraying um, probably two or three times a year for 
uh, alfalfa weevil in their field and other pests, ligus bug and that. So, sure. Um, but they're extremely cognizant with their insecticide applications because they also release leaf cutter bees right. for the pollination of their crops. So it's a very, very efficient and very uh, highly managed effort. Yeah, it's intensively managed. But on top of that, they make a higher value on alfalfa seed, right? So right. it's a high value cash crop compared to alfalfa hay, which is not a high value cash crop unless you're selling it to like Florida for $300 a ton. Yeah. So that's kind of the big difference. In alfalfa forage, I see maybe one insecticide application a year. The guys would really like to do none. Right. Uh, especially and, for the economics. But and, for and, and usually that application occurs after first cutting and when the alfalfa doesn't seem to be greening up like it should, right? Uh, it depends. So it could be right before first cutting okay it could be right after first cutting and that's where our research is coming in is it doesn't matter what people are doing for management there is there's almost no control it seems like of the alfalfa weevil uh so there's a method of you could cut early if you are having heavy infestations of alfalfa weevil if you cut that crop early the theory is that you'd remove that crop get it off the field and the larva would have nothing to chew on and, and consume and continue their development, and they basically dry out in the field. Wouldn't they continue uh, to feed on the crowns as the crowns are emerging after the first cutting? Well, there's a belief that there's enough of a lag from the new sprouts coming from the crown, and when that hay was cut, that window would be enough to kill and, and desiccate those larvae. Apparently that's not happening because that method is not working. Okay. Um, there's okay. some that are, are spraying before they cut. Uh, there's others that are cutting while they spray. They actually spray the windrow underneath the windrow as it's going. Oh, that's interesting. Um, there, uh, there's not a whole lot that I've heard of. It can happen, but uh, not a ton are doing an after first harvest treatment. Okay. Um, there... There's some interest, and I don't know how likely it is, but there's some interest of a, an early application. We'll even call it back in March, April time, so when that alfalfa is just greening up and, and growing. There's some interest that there might be some insecticides that could be applied then to control adults in the field. Thus, there wouldn't be egg laying, and then you wouldn't have larval populations that are actually damaging the crop. So uh, alfalfa weevil overwinter as adults, right? Correct. Yep. yep, it's a snout beetle. They're yep. about the size of a grain of rice. Yep. Yeah, okay. Uh, very interesting stuff. Oh, yeah. I know that the guys are treating it for alfalfa weevil around here. Um, and uh, there's a new publication from the University of Wyoming about the insects that can be found in alfalfa from Randa Jabor. Do you have copies of that, uh, Jeremiah? I have one. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I got a copy of it in my car. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot, but but I could definitely get a copy for somebody. We it'd probably be a printed copy on the printer, um, just from the electronic file. They can also pull it up on the UW Extension uh, Publications website. I know that they're available here locally as well um, at at the Extension office. There's a pile of them that need to get there. So yeah, if people okay. are interested in those, they are available. Fantastic. Yeah, and I know Rinda probably has a few more copies with her on campus so okay but right. we we right. already distributed ours and i'm down to my only office copy your, your reference copy 
Yes. <laughs> that you have stapled to your desk so nobody can steal it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So, Jeremiah, when when you say that, that your area is, is, is a seed production, so then these seed companies will come in and buy the seed and then actually store it as well? Uh, so it depends on what crop you're talking about. But, yes, um, a bulk of our crops up here uh, – so sugar beets, malt barley, uh, alfalfa seed, dry beans, uh, they're all a contracted crop. So what that means is before the planting season even happens, we're talking February, March, maybe January, they're uh, working with the industries and saying, okay, you can grow, I'll grow this many acres for you. Uh, that will estimate us to have this kind of yield coming into you as an industry and the industry gives them a set price at that point. So they already have um, money basically set aside. They know what they're going to get for their crop if they can turn out a good crop. Yeah. Um, so depending on, on the industry, so uh, malt barley, we have silos up here. Uh, they're industry silos, and so the growers will bring their grain in and, and dump it into the silos at the end of harvest or, or during harvest. Um, Sometimes, even malt barley, sometimes there's an uh, on-farm on storage that is required with the contract. So one of those in particular is sunflowers. So we grow some sunflower seeds. It's not as popular as it was, oh, maybe four or five years ago. But uh, with sunflower seeds, it was almost primarily on-farm storage. Oil or... or uh, Confection. Confection. Confection, yep. Uh-huh. I'll be darned. So I saw something interesting on the news channel the other day that uh, these guys in Kansas were planting hemp, and they were going to do uh, 80 acres of hemp, and so they measured and weighed all the seeds to put them into each hopper equally, and it didn't look like that they were putting much into each hopper, but $21,000 for 80 acres of seed. Holy cow! I, well, I, I thought that was rather expensive. Uh, seed is very expensive, it, it, yeah, regardless of the crop. The, over the board. Right? Yes, yes. See, all seed is very expensive. And so, yep. uh, um, uh, do you see anybody thinking of getting into hemp growing around your area? Oh man, you had to go there, didn't you? I'm he sorry. Just he just didn't want to talk about that store. today. <laughs> well, it's becoming a more of a topic, and it's and, a big topic, yeah. And you yeah. know, hemp is not marijuana, uh, but every there's a lot of folks that still believe that that is the same thing. Yeah, so there is interest. Um, uh, our farmers up here, and, and probably for all of our agriculture industry in the state of Wyoming, they're just opportunistic people. They're very progressive, and if there is uh, a market that can be served with Wyoming's uh, growing abilities. We're going to try and figure out a way to do that. Yeah. So I, there are some producers up here in the area that are, are looking at it, watching what's going to happen, um, have been at the table with a lot of these discussions. There's been a few um, meetings around hemp and getting it legalized and working with the state on how that would work and grow in the area. So I, there is some interest. Um, what direction that hemp production is going to be is going to be, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. 
there's a potential we could do some seed production here in the Bighorn Basin. Again, we're just kind of a seed area. So that's an option. We'll just have to see if that comes to fruition. Um, the fiber, the food, uh, you know, the CBD oil, uh, those are all on the table. Uh, at least from my perspective, it, it, it's a manufacturing aspect that, that is, is going to hold that up. Well, Are we going to be able to have manufacturing close enough to us so that it's a viable market for us? And, and as well, having testing stations around because, you know, if you're a farmer and transporting crop to an area, you don't want to get pulled over and go, yeah, what's in the back of your truck? <laughs> right. Correct. And there's a lot of unknown on that kind of stuff, oh, yeah. right? So here's one scenario that's being thrown out there. Uh, what if an alf, uh, a hemp seed is... Uh, escapes cultivation right from a neighboring field or whatever becomes a weed in another crop so an example would be like alfalfa seed and they harvest that and both of them hemp and alfalfa seed is fairly small so they harvest that they they can't get that hemp seed cleaned out of the alfalfa seed and when they send it to a the seed lab for testing and it's identified they can't identify that seed between hemp and marijuana seed without a genetic test which is rather expensive so now do are you in possession of an illegal wow yeah substance right you know and there so there since hemp isn't legal in all states like uh idaho right um that crop if we traditionally sell alfalfa seed to idaho that crop that was harvested where a hemp seed was detected cannot be um shipped or sold to idaho yeah correct well, in so all there, the- there's a lot of gray lines and, and just some unclear things of how this is going to move forward. How do we handle it? How do we manage it? Um, but I, at least for me, from my perspective, um, the biggest thing is where's the market? Um, for, for the growers up here in the Bighorn Basin, we can grow about anything. We had producers up here growing cabbage on a commercial scale, heads of, heads of cabbage. Uh, we've grown peas for um, canned peas in the past. And so we can grow almost anything, but we just need the market to sell it into because it does no good to grow I, a field of it and you can't get rid of it. I've been told that they used to produce uh, cabbage for production in the Laramie area in the 40s and 50s, I think. Um, so, oh, wow. so, yeah, we can grow it. It's just, you're correct. We have to have a market for it okay. and a way to process these things in order to sell them and get them out of the and state. And still, 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 still become legal. And I never even considered the cross, it's not cross-pollination, but the cross-contamination, uh, if you will, of, of maybe those kind of seeds. Um, it's kind of like, hey, this this producing factory produces peanuts and uh, by the way if you're allergic to peanuts uh, this product uh, was shipped and packaged in a peanut area so yeah it's just it's just one of those Those types of things that we're going to have to deal with Uh, okay Uh, we are over time as far as uh, listening to our sponsors we're going to take a break Jeremiah and um, be be prepared to talk about your garden when we get back okay I'll work on that okay all right Okay, we're back. This is the KGOS KRM Lawn and Garden Program. This is Jeff Edwards. We have Jerry Irshabek and Jeremiah Vardaman with us. And uh, so, Jeremiah, before the break, I ask yeah. you to think about your garden. I know you told me that your wife does most of the gardening, but uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. And what do you guys got growing? Uh, slowly. Let's put. I mean, <laughs> it, it's growing slowly up there, right? 
Yeah, it is. It is growing slowly. We keep a pretty, uh, it's a pretty small garden. We, we've we actually taken some large tractor ch- tires and made some raised beds out of them. Oh, perfect. Um, yeah, it was really cheap and easy to do, and um, yeah, not down on your hands and knees. Uh, um, economical. Right, there you go. <laughs> um, so, it, But we got lettuce, um, carrots, and snap peas is what we got growing so far in the in the garden and that's about what we grow we we have three three tires that we're growing and we pretty much try and just offset our our salad uh for the growing season sure. and right now the growing season seems to be shortening on us so <laughs> uh, quickly um so last week i think jerry i shared that i had my first raspberry uh this Ooh. this year happens to be one of the best raspberry years that no I think could possibly happen. Um, and I've had several handfuls of raspberries since last week. And I believe Diane's been grazing too. So um, these are raspberries that we have in the high tunnel. The, 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 so the first crop that normally happens in July is happening. But uh, the plants are the tallest we've ever had. They're probably uh, close to eight feet tall. Wow. Um, I guess that might be including the foot of bed. So, uh, but um, uh, they're just going to be loaded. And because it's cooler and wetter, we don't have the spider mite problem that we've had in the past. Because yeah. spider mites like hot and dry, right? Oh so, yeah, they do. So um, uh, Diane keeps asking me, "How are you going to keep tying up those tall plants?" And I told her, "I'm just going to start tying them to each other and let them figure it out, <laughs> rope them down." <laughs> yeah, something. Um, uh, carrots are coming. Uh, we have uh, carrots that are about, the, the tops are about 8 to 12 inches tall. Uh, should be, again, to be harvestable, I don't know, a couple, couple more weeks. Yeah. Uh, starting soon, probably. Uh, Neighbors got some strawberries coming and, and a couple of pints so far. Nice. Our strawberry so, crop oh. is over. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's finished. Did uh, the rabbit? Peas called snow peas that you can eat the pods. Yeah, uh, snow peas. We've been grazing on them for a while. We've had several nice batches of them. We've harvested a head of broccoli. Um, uh, we uh, the pur- let, let me give you a purple green bean update. I still do not think that it's warm enough for the bean for the beans to actually those beans to be actually germinating. I think uh. I think I got six plants to germinate out of I don't know thirty feet of row. And uh, they're, I think they're kind of struggling. I think our beans are like about an inch and a half, two inches tall now. Okay. You know, so, uh, so, again, slow. Right, and it's it has to do with those heat units that we're yeah, missing. Yeah, heat units, right? Yep, yep. yep. Um, well, s- talking about heat units, our lawns are getting multicolored green. Yes, so... Too um, much water, eh? Well, uh, you know, there's... Um, I can't say for our area that there's ever too ever much. too much, but for our lawns... For perhaps. our lawns, perhaps. Um, and uh, uh, one of the easiest fixes, uh, since we're, we're getting a lot of growth now, is to find a, uh, a iron supplement of some type. They, uh, there, there is a product available. It's called an iron chelate product. Uh, it can be formulated or mixed with water and applied, and um, that will uh, iron in our country will green the crop without uh, without growth. stimulating growth. So uh, the the benefit of doing that is that 
now that you're mowing twice a week, you don't have to mow three times a week. Oh, God. You have to make an appointment to mow your lawn. You know, say, hey, God, uh, what about Wednesday? No, that won't work. Not going to happen Wednesday. So for, for those of us who are still employed, um, it, it becomes a challenge to get that lawn mowed. And, and uh, my neighbor and I, we, we team together and mow the lawns, but... Uh, Sometimes it's it, it gets really high. I had a had a goat knocking on the door saying, "Hey, you want me to clear out that lower lower forty for you?" Nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> oh goats, man, goats are nice and and very good eaters, but they're nondescript and they'll eat most everything. You've really got to fence them in where you want them to be, right? Yep. And and keep them from jumping out of that space. Or wear, make them wear a, a nice harness that they won't choke themselves with. Or two and a half. Or two. <laughs> <laughs> eat iron. Uh, or yeah, chew in half. They're they're a they're a good good chewer, but man, they they've got a few problems with them as well. Yeah. So just like everything, right? Just like everything. Yeah. So the can I jump back to the alfalfa weevil just a little bit? Is there a problem now with cows eating those weevils? No, no. The it's alfalfa protein. weevil is oh protein, <laughs> right? Add protein in the bale. So no, the alfalfa weevil is uh, yeah. The alfalfa weevil is more just the defoliant of the the crop, and so it robs the nutritional value and can rob the yield of the crop. That's the bigger issue. But blister beetles. Alfalfa, oh, blister right. beetles. Yeah. They're not blister beetles, right? Totally different that way. Yeah. So uh, spray program then, uh, aerial? Uh, it can be a ground, ground application. Uh -huh. It can be aerial application. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, but the one thing I was going to mention before was um, when Jeff brought up the resistance, at least the what I am seeing in the field and, and experiencing while I work with some growers, I think it's a timing issue. It's an application timing issue of when that insecticide goes on is where we're not getting the best control. Right. Um, it's really difficult. And it's hard. It's really difficult to control adults. The smaller instar larvae, and we talked about instars last I week, do. right? I know what those are. Uh, are easier to control than either pupil stage. Pupil stage for an alfalfa weevil is really interesting because they they actually weave a little cocoon ball that is uh, uh, you can find it in the crowns of the alfalfa. Uh, so when they're ready to pupate, they drop to the soil surface and weave this little cocoon. And pesticides don't get through that. So, yeah. uh, and I really like the idea of of did you say cutting the crop, cutting the hay, and spraying at the same time? Yes, yeah. I, I kind of like that idea too. Because you package up the adults into the bale. Well, no, they would be so when you're going through the alfalfa, the act of cutting it, it actually knocks the weevils off onto the ground. Onto the ground, so then spray underneath the windrow as you're as you're going. As you're going. So you would knock out adults and young. Um yeah, uh, potentially. potentially. Adults are really difficult to control yeah. though. Yeah. It, yeah, sweet. potentially. It's tough. Uh so basically they set up a spray rig on the swather uh or the the rotary cutter, the windrower. Um and so yeah, it actually sprays underneath, but one of the challenges with that is it limits the 
insecticide chemistry that you're allowed to use. Right. And um, yeah, if you did something like that, you'd probably only be able to do that application with that particular product once per season. Correct. Um, and so, uh, hopefully, you'd get them under control and be able to be able to get into your next cuttings and uh, without any issues. But but the individual that I uh, talk to that I know does that, they're not getting control with that type of management. Oh, well. so it might be the product of choice, right? Because if right. you're applying underneath the crop, it has to have a zero pre-harvest interval, basically. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah, you would be limited on the products that you could use. Mm. And so I, you know, we get control when we when we spray a field for alfalfa weevil. There is a knockdown, I'll call it, that we do have control of those alfalfa weevil. Uh, is there resistance? Yes, there's a potential out there, but we don't know of it yet. Um, but with it is, it's just the challenge of it, and and where I feel that we are failing in our management of the alfalfa weevil is we're not breaking that pest cycle. We're not breaking that alfalfa weevil levels of populations or infestations from one year to the next. Right. Um, and when, and you have so a, when you have a perennial crop where the insect overwinters as an adult, uh, you are probably going to have a really difficult time getting it under control when you once you have it. Right. Yeah. Mm. So... And so it's just year after year we have it, and uh, so when I say we have lack of control, sometimes I get a little pushback from people. So you, they feel that uh, that means our insecticides are not working, and it's not that they're not working, but we're just not getting a, an effective, good control on the on the insects to the point where we potentially don't have to control them the following year. Yeah, and and we're talking about a large populations of insects, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so... They just explode. It's unreal. One alfalfa weevil can lay anywhere between 500 to 800 eggs in the spring. So one alfalfa weevil, one female, can lay that many eggs and give rise essentially to 500 larvae, right? Right, right, yeah. It's just, it's just incredible. So... Hmm. You're talking about the same kind of birth rate for mosquitoes. <laughs> Gee. And, and aphids. And, and aphids, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so let's uh, let's try to get back to lawn and garden subjects. Okay, we had a I'm we gonna, had a question. Yes, in. we did. Um, the best time to plant iris uh, transplant. Oh, transplant to transplant iris. So personally, I I find that any time after the the iris blooms, and uh, the bloom has now come off of the plant, and now you're looking at a stalk, you can transplant that. I'd cut it back. Uh, cut your your leaves back to a, a kind of a diamond shape. Um, v. Of, of an v, upside down an V, upside right? upside down V. And go ahead and let those rest for a day or two. And then to dry just a little bit. And then replant them in your own bed. How much, how high from the uh, rhizome? It is a rhizome? Rhizome. Yeah, how high from the rhizome do you make that cut of those leaves? Probably about five to six inches. Okay. So you really whack the crap out of them. But, you know, a lot of people can, if they want to, to help promote bigger rhizomes, they can, you can let that go till fall until it freezes and then clean up your yard. If you have a problematic area where you have a lot of iris that have a bunch of weeds in it and you want to clean that up, 
after the iris has bloomed, uh, it's go time. So you can transplant anytime. Uh, yeah, but you know the the purists, right? My friend Tom McCurry, he you gotta wait till winter, Jerry. You gotta wait till it freezes. Well, iris are is the beginning gardener's flower. You can do anything to that dang iris, almost, and it'll grow. We also we also used to be encouraged by Jerry Simonson to use a uh, bleach solution uh, when you when you cut when you make those cuts you let it rest and then you do a light bleaching uh, like a three percent bleach solution to make sure that you're not transplanting any diseases along with it and you dunk the whole plant into it yeah well the roots mainly the roots yeah yeah you know uh, iris uh, cannas canna bulbs. Uh, 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 there's several of those gladolias. Thank you, because I, I wasn't coming up with any of those words. Gladolias. Uh, <laughs> there's one more that we like. Dahlias. So all of those kind of things, they they do suggest to cleanse them, and uh, before they you put them back in the soil again. Since since we're talking about cleansing, we need to be on the watch for powdery mildew, downy mildew, because it spreads. Well. You know, cool, wet, damp weather, it's going to start. We're going to get it. So um, when we get fungal diseases in crops, it's too late, or plants in our landscaping, it's too late to control it. You might be able to suppress it. But uh, one of the things we need to be watchful of is that um, copper sulfate type products would actually maybe prevent you from having these issues. Now where do you see that? Do you see that on your lawns or do you see that on your plants? So it can show up in your, th these types of things can show up in your lawns, but um, uh, lilacs are good victims. Um, any large uh, vegetable, leafy vegetable crop that you might have, your pumpkins, uh -oh. um, your winter squash, your um, uh, cantaloupe, watermelon, those types of things with those large flat leaves where they hold humidity in underneath um, can develop these types of diseases and it might be, if you have a prize pumpkin, it might be a good idea to uh, look for some copper sulfate product. <laughs> Jerry's taking a note. <laughs> copper sulfate product to, um, to help protect them from uh, uh, these mildews yeah. that can occur, and and they they will come because of the conditions that we're having. So we've seen in the past, we've seen one or two, and so we eradicate them immediately. One we, or two what? Pumpkins that have had kind of a powdery mildew, and and it it makes that leaf just like like a p powder. Well, sure, it, it it kills that leaf, right? Yeah. So, but eventually it'll kill the plant. So, right. Uh, if we can eradicate that one, just dig it out. Let's like a tomato. If the, if your tomatoes are going south, going to the dark side, <laughs> pull them up, throw literally. Them away. <laughs> yeah, literally to the dark side. Throw, pull them up, throw them away. Because that's the other thing that can be occurring right now is uh, tomato blight. Uh, or tomato leaf blight, and then potato blight. Those types of things can start to be showing up. Uh, if you have unexplained death in those plants, that might be part of it. Uh, these types of things are viral. So if you, um, if you have a suspect plant and you cut a um, stem and that stem oozes and it's not clear liquid, it's highly likely that it has a viral disease. Mm. Um, so uh, those types of things need to be 
entirely removed from your garden so they don't infect other and crops. Clean your nursing. tools. Yeah. Clean and your tools. Oh, well, so what about cleaning the bottom side of your lawnmower? Um, sure. Sure. It's more <laughs> important to have a sharp blade than it is to clean the bottom side of your lawnmower as far as disease okay. transmission. So is disease transmission then the postman tell him to stay off your lawn? <laughs> because <laughs> are you just looking for an excuse to keep him off the lawn? No, I love postmen. They post post, post people. people post people. Uh, but I see them all the time. They, they, you know, gosh, they they walk. They walk a lot, a lot. And if they can cut three steps, which translates into thirty steps or miles or, or off of their route, uh, go for it. I say go for it. But you know, they, some people will say, oh, you need to really clean your lawnmower, you need to make sure your postman uses the sidewalk, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, in all reality, you have dogs, you have cats, you have people, you have friends. Raccoons. Raccoons. Possums. Oh, deer. Squirrels. Uh, coming off of your lawn, and, you know, there's a whole host of stuff. Right, right. And, you know, whose who's feet are more important? Uh, well, yeah, the dogs <laughs> and cats. Uh, so, at any rate, getting back to those iris... They are strong enough that you can experiment with them. Uh, you can cut them, you not cut them. The Japanese iris are coming up right now. Oh, they are so pretty. And they're a much, much, much taller iris. And they have just a little bit of a yellow-white flower at the top. Somewhere in town I saw some irises oh, that yeah. were about four feet tall. On Main Street uh, going... No, it's on C Street going north. There's a house just... Uh, on the on the west side that has a really nice nice stand of of Japanese iris. Well, actually, going down that street just past the school, if you look left and right, there's there's iris growing there. They're they're really nice. Hey Jerry, guess what time it is? Oh gosh, we need to have an hour and a half on this thing <laughs> on Sunday. <laughs> uh, some folks got some useful information out of it today. We appreciate you being with us. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank okay. you. All right, we'll have to do it again sometime. I have just one last thing. Sounds good. Please do. Yeah. Okay. Last week, I had difficulty pronouncing a word of a tree, and it is catalpa, and it's one of the trees that are blooming now. If you look up, gee whiz, there's just everything in the world blooming now. I think I'm more observant because I'm on this show, but... <laughs> What a fantastic blooming season. Yeah, large large white flowers. Um, they're actually in the pea or bean family, so they produce a pod. Um, but they look like big bean And the flowers. oldest tree in the, uh, the oldest catalpa, catalpa tree is in the back of the extension office. So if you really want a, 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 a nice specimen to look at, there's, there's the one. I believe it's the oldest one in the state, but that... Could be. Well, and I've heard oldest tree in the county, oldest tree in the state. Yeah. Needle. I don't know how old oldest is. Hey, I think Greg's getting impatient. Uh, <laughs> Jerry, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye now. Jeremiah, thank you. Uh, we'll, uh, yeah, talk, bye, guys. we'll talk to you all. Thanks. Sounds good.